0: It's a choice to show up curious and to suspend what you think you already know you know to be in a conversation with another person who's drastically different.
1: Psychological Safety at Work, a season of podcasts from Talking Leaders. Hello. And welcome to another episode in the Talking Leaders season on psychological safety at work. I'm Paul Gisby. This episode features a conversation I had with leadership and interpersonal communication experts Katie McCleary and Jennifer Edwards about their new book, Bridge the Gap. As you'll hear me explain, I don't normally do book reviews, but serendipitously I became aware of this book as I was planning the current season, and as you'll hear me explain, Even though Katie and Jennifer don't even mention the term psychological safety in the book, what they write about is definitely in the psychological safety space. Okay, let's meet them both.
0: I'm Katie McCleary and I am a writer. I teach about leadership and I get to work alongside this wonderful woman who I call my work wife about equipping and empowering people to have better communication skills in the workplace, in communities, and at home. And
2: thank you, Work Wife. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm Jennifer Edwards, and um, it's a delight to work alongside this smart, creative woman um, who it really is my iron sharpening iron. Um, I spend a lot of my time in the entrepreneurial world, um, in the venture capital world, and specifically in the corporate world helping people learn how to have great conversations and make great decisions under pressure. And working with Katie has allowed for us to really bring a book for leaders across spectrums, generations and careers, and the everyday professional to really know how in the world can you communicate most effectively with people that you may not understand.
1: And how long have you been working together?
0: We've been working together for a little over four years we met in a women's leadership circle, and we were introduced to each other because I was writing a book and Jennifer was writing a book. And you know when you meet someone and your your curiosity is just piqued, and yet you don't really know why because the other person is so different than you, and maybe not someone who you would traditionally choose to hang out with. And so when we really got to know each other in this women's leadership group, um, it became clear that this was gonna be an iron sharpens iron situation, or sparks could fly, we could become competitive with one another, or we could choose to work in partnership because frankly, we really liked each other.
1: Yeah. Right, so, so you started working together and then clearly it was, it was working, but given that you do have very different outlooks on some things in the world, do sparks mm-hmm. still occasionally fly?
2: Sparks do fly, and they're healthy. And sparks fly because we care so much about things. So the best way I can explain it is this. Katie and I, while we may be really different, we fight for the same values. We just might go after the same values in a different way. So when it, when it, when it comes down to it, we fight for freedom, the ability for the entrepreneur to succeed, For all people to have a right to um, education, human rights, racial equality. In the end, we fight for the same things. And so, when sparks might fly, we return to the values of what we fight for. And we use our own tools we talk about in the book. We get radically curious, we come present, not projecting, and we really say, Hey, I care enough about you and your lived experience to tell me. Something I may not even know, and I'm going to be with you through it. There isn't any conversation we can't have with that approach.
1: So you're a living, breathing example of the value of diversity of thinking, aren't you? In that you you both want to tackle and solve the same problems, but you are able to bring different ways of looking at them, and and therefore benefit from that diversity of, of thought.
0: Yes, and I would add that that's an active choice we make, and I'm not sure that some people understand that it's a, choice. it's a choice. It's a choice to show up curious and to suspend what you think you already know you know to be in a conversation with another person who's drastically different. We, we love a quote by Seth Godin, which essentially says, if you wanna have any chance of communication with someone, you have to travel to their place of right you're right about your feelings, you're right about your experiences, you're right about your values. You have to travel to that place. And Jennifer always adds, which makes our audience chuckle, you don't have to live there. You're just going to travel there. And I think that's really important to understand because if you travel there and be with someone, and I still may not agree with her approach, what you know, maybe she's fighting or advocating for, at least I listened and traveled to it. I can repeat it back and understand it, and I can say, "Here's where things get sticky for me." Then she gets radically curious, and I swear every time, Paul, we reach a breakthrough. But you got to sit through that breakdown and suspend everything in you that wants to react.
1: Mm, that sounds like a really valuable—I don't know what's the right word—formula or, or mechanism that you've managed to develop and, 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 and use. So. Let's let's get on to psychological safety, because that's what this season is about. Now, let me just explain to the listeners why um, I'm talking to you today uh, in a bit more detail. So I met you because I think it was your agent approached me and asked if I was interested in talking to you about your new book, Bridge the Gap. And uh, I get quite a few inquiries like this on talking leaders, and I usually decline them because it's not something that Talking Leaders does. There are lots of podcasts that do that and they do them very well, but that's not a thing I routinely do. But when I read a bit more about you and then also spoke to you both and we had our conversation, I realized that uh, although you don't specifically focus on psychological safety in in, in the book, um, I'm not even sure if you actually use the term anywhere in the book, do you? Um, no, we don't. No, we right. use
0: another term.
1: Right. Uh, but when I read it, I thought, well, this is this is actually it, – it's all in a psychological safety type space, what you're doing. I mean, there are several things that, that point me to it. I mean, a couple of things. One, halfway through or two-thirds of the way through, you quote – is it Paul J. Zak who talks about uh, a culture of trust can be a game changer? Um, and then also, right near the end, when you're talking about what you hope for the book, you say – and I'm going to quote you again – the best that we can do is set up an environment where people can belong, where they come to know and care about one another through sharing their lived experiences and by twisting their kaleidoscopes, which is a technique which we might talk about that you you endorse. Um, I mean, that, although you don't call it that, that is right in the psychological safety space, if you like. And what you've just been describing is how you work. Again, uh, I, I was very attracted to that because... I think that's 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 basically what you're talking about and what we talk about when we talk about psychological safety so that was one thing that really piqued my interest and then the second thing that really uh, attracted me to the idea of of getting you on the show was or is, that the book is very practical it's full of practical and actionable advice you don't just discuss the concepts and the ideas you do talk about those as well and you and i being a scientist, I like the fact that you give some of the science behind it as well, which is always interesting to me. But, but more importantly, and fitting with what I like to do on talking leaders, you tell people what to do or things that they could try to do that can help them. Um, and I, and again, I liked that very much. So, I thought, yeah, let's let uh, let's go ahead with this. And then finally, if I needed anything else, you have an endorsement from from um, uh, Amy Edmondson. So um, that's that's pretty much a pointer that you're you're sort of in the right the right space. So I, I'm. that's why I've been really looking forward to having our conversation um, today. So you work together, you act as consultants and you work with uh, organizations, as you say, you work very much in the corporate space and you've brought together your thinking and your learning uh, into your new book, Bridge the Gap. So let's, without further ado, let's, let's move into that. And maybe we could start off by you You've already started to do it, but maybe just continue that theme and talk to us about the philosophy behind how you work and therefore uh, the book itself.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to know when this book was being written versus when it was being published. Two different timelines. We wrote the book, and we're in the United States, at a time when political polarization, social justice... Um, protests or riots, whichever side of the fence you sit on, (laughs) were happening, Um, news media fighting for different narratives to influence viewers and audiences. So in experiencing a lot of that polarization between two political parties in America, the liberal and the conservatives, Jennifer and I were coming together from two different sides of the table and trying to intersect a curriculum to say how do we really move people to change, show up better, have great conversations? And the societal pressure upon us in this moment was being played out every day. So we were actively seeing the consequences of people not communicating across the gap or the divide very well. So I think a lot about how we wrote the book to really impact the reader who doesn't want to be talked at anymore about listening better, about being curious, about mindfulness, and I'm also gonna dare to say psychological safety. So we aimed to almost write around it and write to someone who was skeptical about any of this working or having an impact on their life. Because honestly, when we work with our clients and we love our clients, they're amazing. But when you give them a tiny tool or a tiny shift to apply and they go, really, is that that really going to work? Oh my gosh, it so works. So we were very particular not to throw in things like, um, let's talk about the importance of psychological safety for five chapters. That is great that is not our audience. Our audience wants to know what's the science behind it, is it real and effective, and what do I need to do to get there? So Jennifer, what might you add to that? I love how you described it.
2: I think at our core, what we knew is that in our workplaces, it's almost like we get to practice democracy. We talk a lot about the fact that we all go to work with people we don't choose to go to work with. Many of them have preferences that we don't prefer. They come from different lived experiences. They have different temperaments, eating habits, preferences around just just a variety of things. And yet we go to work with them and guess what we have to do? We have to learn how to unify to get great work accomplished, meaningful work accomplished, to complete projects and what we found in the last four years ago and in that in that era the conversations were getting tighter more squeezed more awkward and more sparks flying so we wrote this book because our clients needed help they needed to say how do i have these tough conversations how do i talk to my son who's gone sideways and i'm doing air quotes in this word sideways how do I actually show up and and get curious about this changing world I'm in? How do I care differently?
1: I uh, the one thing I like to do sometimes is is when I'm trying to advocate to somebody why a technique or a book or whatever might be be good. Um, I like to put it in terms of if you're suffering from this problem or if you have this this challenge, this is the thing for you, and you've sort of. Described already, but but if you were to say it a bit more succinctly than that, what is the, the, the sort of five-second, uh, if you've got this problem, then this is for you sentence?
0: My sentence is, without a doubt, people struggle to understand, like, and respect one another in a crazy, volatile, uncertain, and changing world. And we can give you a three-step, replicable way to have a great conversation with anyone, anywhere. Anytime, yeah. ditto
1: okay, and um, before we go on to the to, to the book because i 'd like to sort of then move on if we can quite quickly to to um, how you 've structured the, the approach that you, you've've you've written down, what you said there sort of assumes i think uh, what i 'm hearing is that somebody knows that the problems that they 're having is because they 're not having good conversations, and there 's something that they could do to improve those conversations. Um, But having read the book, and in particular, I'm thinking of one character that you introduced quite early on. Is it Michael? Michael Mm -hmm. and Trent? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, What about people who just don't think it's them? It's other people.
2: Paul, there will always be those people. And we have to acknowledge that the only person you can take responsibility for changing is yourself. So we're clear we can't shove these ideas on anyone All we can do is equip the person who's ready to have a conversation and ask them to bring a different presence, ask them to bring a different level of curiosity. And in doing so, that might open up a conversation that they'd never had with that person. There's no shoulding, woulding, or coulding you can do on people that will change them. But curiosity, it can open a door, a window into something people have never thought about before. And maybe start a different conversation.
1: Mm. Yeah, and just linking it back again to to psychological safety and my reasons for thinking this was this was a good fit with the season. Um, I, I, I think what you're, I think what some people could hear is if they knew that that maybe they didn't work in a, 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 a psychologically safe space, or that it could be improved, or that their team didn't have a psychologically safe space. What you are offering is people the opportunity to do something themselves. It's, it's saying, hey, look, you know, maybe some other things need sorting out. But in the moment, actually, there's something you could do yourself. And and it's not just about fixing you. It's about equipping you well to said. better perform yourself and and help others um, overcome, overcome challenges. All right, let's, let's move on then. I'm, I'm conscious of time. Talk us through... The book itself. I mean, what, what, what? When someone goes through it, what are they going to find?
0: This actually ties to the last question, which is that we're trying to build for readers that they have a sense of psychology. So a lot of people don't don't think about themselves outside of themselves. They are aware that. Things might be tight or awkward or they're angry or someone's doing something to them. So when we wrote this book, we wanted to be able to to walk people through their biological reactions, to take the stigma out of saying, it's you, this is how you react, to say this is how humans react when under pressure or in a conversation that they don't want to have or work with someone they don't want to work with. Second, it's about understanding our psychology and a sense of psychology and what is the difference between the brain and the mind. This is contentious. And for a lot of people, Paul, they have never thought about this. They've never thought about, do I have thoughts? Do I have an inner narrator in my mind? And then third, if I have a sense of my biology and my psychology, then what is sociology? What is the environment, the ecology in which I'm working inside of? So sociological forces of I work with five generations of people who are different than me, have different ways of communicating, preferred methods of contact, you know, text, email, phone, messaging apps. To other bigger social pressures of political polarization, politics, gender and sexual expression, um, faith spirituality, values, all those things create an identity and really to give people an understanding that they have this identity that's created and shaped by these forces. So if I work in a place that there's struggle between different perspectives and identities, then how can I create an environment in order to be with people who are, for lack of a better term, fundamentally different than me? And that is creating an environment of psychological safety, but one first has to have a concept of their own psychology in order to flip that and create it for another person who may be shut down, like our Michael character, who's so blind to the fact that he's creating all this drama and needless suffering. And for what? His pride. And that is true for so many people. Um, I think, just in the world. And so for those of us who have to work with the Michaels of the world, then what are the tools that I can do that I don't have to invest so much of my own suffering, anxiety, irritation, impatience? What's a tool that I can use to set up an environment for Michael to maybe open and soften?
1: Hmm. Well, let's let's get on to the, the practicalities and the, and, and the tools then, and and it's not just a list of tools. I mean, it, they're, they're 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 very much in line with a, with an overall approach as well, aren't they? I and mean, you've mentioned curiosity several times um, uh, already, and and that's because that's that's a really strong theme, isn't it? But so, to take us through the, the sort of practical stuff then. You've and I, I and mean, we're we're glossing over a lot of stuff uh, in interest of time. And one thing I, I do want to mention that I think a lot of people would find useful. Uh, to think about is is you talk about the drama triangle and yeah. the roles that we play, whether you you fall into the role of being persecutor, rescuer, or victim. Um, I th- I found that was very interesting, and, and I, I found that quite useful to reflect upon situations I've been in. But th- that's that's not cover that uh, that description of the situation. Talk us through the the uh, the tools and the the approach that you advocate.
2: Well, the first tool we advocate is that piece Katie just spoke so. Importantly, about is you have an important role to play in any relationship you are in, and that's called show up clean. Get yourself as clean, clear, and curious you can be going into any engagement, any conversation, and experience. And as long as you are aware of that, the very first tool we really teach strong is this concept of listening. And Paul, we ask this question all the time, and most people have never thought about this. Do you listen to your listening? Do you actually pay attention to how you make meaning of the words you hear and what stories you tell yourself based on your lived experiences and how your biology and mind are triggered or not triggered? And that's the very first essence of the tool we teach. I mean, like no communication can happen until you're clear about how you listen to your listening. And Katie, uh, you may want to add to this, but what we find is people are just like, oh, I've never thought about that. I mean, red means red to everyone. Go means go to everyone.
0: And so what we talk about is pay attention. Katie, what might you add in that place? I would add that we make it practical by saying there are four hurdles to listening that most people struggle with. And we say it's a hurdle because it's not just going to disappear one day. So you have to be aware of what are your hurdles to listening. One of mine is wanting to interrupt people and finish their sentences because I think I know what they're going to say. And I'm just naturally an impatient person. I think this is true for a lot of people. I'm not listening when I'm doing that. And one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that people don't really want your time. They want your energy. They want your energy while they do their own processing. So if I interrupt them, I'm doing processing for them and it's breaking connection and maybe I'm missing out on something that they might say that isn't in my context or understanding. So that's an example of a hurdle. So if I know and identify that that's my hurdle um, and when we teach this to people in teams, we help them do teamwork so that they can identify their hurdle if it's blind to them in a pretty safe way so they can hear and accept it. Um, I know how I have to jump over that hurdle if I'm in a conversation with Michael. I'm gonna intentionally not process his thoughts for him and interrupt. Then there's this thing called headphones, which is that we all wear headphones depending on who we're with in the situation. So we used to we we like to use really memorable analogies or metaphors. I think it really sticks with people. And it says, How are you doing passive pleaser listening? To someone who just goes, "Uh uh-huh, yep, mm mm-hmm, okay, uh uh-huh, right, mm mm-hmm, you're not listening. That's not engagement. That's not active listening. To the other side of the spectrum is, well, why do you think that? Oh, well, I read this one thing once, and you should listen to it. What about this podcast? Did you hear about this idea, right? Like, that's, like, suspicious, defensive listening, even though that person's usually just showing up to show off what they know, and they're trying to contribute to the conversation. So we say, where are your hurdles, what headphones do you listen with and how can you show up with clean curiosity? How are you going to be an explorer of what this person is about to share with you?
1: Hmm. I think when I read that bit, t- two things struck me. Um, I mean, one, I-, I like to think I'm, I'm, I'm a bit further down that path as to listening to listening because of what I do as an interviewer. So I think that's, that's helped me. But um the thing about it is, and 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 what I like is is the way you describe it. It's easy to do; it's easy for you to to start listening, and it's easy. easy I think uh, I get. I am guessing n of one to spot what your your particular hurdles are, as you say. But the other thing is, just because you spotted them and you think oh, I've I've cracked it, it's actually really difficult to keep doing it.
2: It's a practice, right? There is no destination in it. It's just a practice. And Katie and I, while we wrote the book, we still practice it every day. We call each other on it. Like we'll hold each other capable to better listening, to better question asking, to better presence, because this is tough stuff. Humans are judgy. We rarely sit in a place where we don't wanna like jump into something. So it's it's really an important art and practice.
1: So we, we talked about turning up clean and curious, and that's mean that means you're ready. You're open, and you're you're yeah. ready to 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 uh, to listen to what other people say and observe and uh, acquire data that's going to inform you as to as to how you act. One quick question: Is there some kind of test that you can do with yourself to make sure you are turning up clean and curious? How do you know when you are properly clean and curious, and you're not still dragging along baggage?
2: What a great question! So. We know we're clean and curious when we really want to understand the person in front of us and not be seen, acknowledged, understood, or accepted by the other person. So I know I'm really clean and curious when I'm like, Hey, Paul, I'm here wanting to know about you. And I'm not doing, see me, I'm important, I matter, let me contribute into you. We're clean and curious when our ego isn't looking for validation. Our self is looking to be with another. And we use this word a lot, be with. When we're with someone, there's no competition energy. There's no performance energy. There's just psychological safety energy. There's just, I'm with you, yeah.
1: period. Yeah, good. Okay, so I'm here. I'm, I'm clean and curious. I'm ready. I'm observing. I'm listening well what next?
2: Well, we make it really practical and we really help people understand what the architecture of a curious conversation is. And we take you through some moves, we call them, hey, what are the moves you can make in a conversation? And I want to point out um, our opening move. And our opening move is all about asking questions that open up the prefrontal cortex to curiosity. And our opening move is to really start conversations with questions like, tell me about, share with me, what about? These questions allow for the person to have a sense of psychological safety, what we call being with them, with no sense of judgment, pushing, prodding, or cajoling into a performative answer. And what we know the brain wants is the brain wants to be have its in basic emotional needs met. And so if we start conversations with respect and dignity by asking a question, hey, Paul, tell me a little bit about your, your podcast. Tell me a little bit about what you're curious um, um, in learning right now. You feel safe to give a true authentic answer. So we really start with that being our primal way, our prime way to make the first move in a curious conversation.
0: I think that to add to that, we have to teach people what curiosity fraud is on the other end. (laughs) Curiosity fraud is when I create a question that yields an answer I'm hoping to hear. Curiosity fraud is when I pecker you with why, what? Tell me more. I mean, like we love the word tell me more, but it's why, 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 why? Trying to dig and get someone caught like gotcha journalism into saying something that they don't mean. It's adding a level of pressure to the questioning. And we've been taught that why is the most important question that you can ask. But until you have psychological safety with someone, you should not touch the word why. Tell me about also allows that person to start where they want to start. What's bubbling up for them? And so if you stick in a curious conversation to say, tell me more, And what else? What does this word mean for you that you just said? If you continue to go down their rabbit holes, you'll be able to read their energy, hear their values, hear their concerns. We actually try to teach people that people aren't problems. People have concerns. And we can become a solution to their concerns if we listen and really understand what those are. Concerns can also be in lieu of the word fear, right? For Michael, in talking to him and in trying to get him to see himself in these situations and how he was impacting others with his behavior, um, he never wanted to admit he had a fear of being irrelevant anymore in his industry or job. He was clearly threatened by the younger people around him who wanted to partner with him and he couldn't see it. So tell me more about that. What does it matter for you? And I think we'll pause there because then there's two more parts to the process.
1: Yeah. And I should we should just probably pray see Michael's story because we've mentioned him several times. I introduced him. I mean, Michael is somebody that you worked with. I'm sure that's not his real name. As you say, he was, he, was, he was older, he was more advanced in his career, and he suddenly found himself threatened when younger people with new ideas were coming along and his ideas weren't being listened to. And he couldn't see that. Actually, he 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 was being intransigent as much as anything, um, and that was that was a big part of his problem. It, it was going back to what I was saying earlier about it's not me, it's them, type type thing. Just a couple of questions, and in fact, you you sort of answered one of them already. Um, I think the first one is, I mean, you, you say okay, we turn up, we turn up clean and curious. We then start curious conversations, and you gave some advice on how you can start those cur- curious conversations and the questions that you ask. But you're not just being curious. For its own sake, are you? I mean, you are looking for answers to something, and you, you did start to, to touch on those things. I think, Katie, and you're trying to find out what are the what are the energy words, what are, what are the motivators for the person you're talking to. You know, how do they see the world? Um, and and, and how, so it's that kind of thing. You're trying to get to know them and get to understand them. Uh, so it isn't just curiosity, just open-endedly for curiosity's sake, is it?
0: Yeah, it's perceptual curiosity. So there's all kinds of drivers of curiosity. There's a lot of research in the book about what curiosity is and where it lives inside you, and it's innate. People will tell you they're curious all the time. The question is are you perceptually curious? Are you curious about the perception and worldview of that other person? And um, I think it's worth noting, and this didn't really make it into the book, but it's important. Jennifer, do you want to talk about Sonder? Go ahead. Okay. So Sonder is a mashup word, and it really means a feeling that you get that somebody else lives a life that is as meaningful, deep, and all-encompassing as your own. And when you really understand that everybody is just deeply entrenched in their own life and experience, they may not be able to lift out of that to connect with you and to see that you also are in a whole life and experience. And so when we choose to step out of that with curiosity and to really be in their perception, I think it's hard to be in someone else's shoes. I think that advice gets thrown around a lot. (laughs) But if I'm looking to say, tell me about your worldview, tell me about the things that impact how you see things, tell me about what's at stake for you. Those are deep questions to ask someone versus like, Other great questions to get at that would be, tell me what's happening in your work right now. Tell me what's happening in your sales funnel. Tell me what's happening um, with executing upon your vision for the organization and who the players are within that. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can make this phrase work for you to get at understanding their perception of what's happening. Yep.
1: Yeah and just to keep keep people well actually me on track as to as to why we're doing this i mean we're doing all this because uh, in most cases what we've been doing before in trying to connect with these people hasn't worked and so this is all about trying to understand well just exactly who are they and maybe finding out why the approach that you've been taking doesn't work and, and why you know what other approaches you might be able to take that would that would be better suited to to you, to connect to them uh, that's right yeah
2: Correct. Yep.
1: It's okay. So before we then move on from there, one other question. Now you, you gave some, uh, Jennifer, you gave some phrases that you said, you know, you can use to start off your, your curious conversations. I mean, those, those questions are very useful. As you read them out there as a list, though, the one thing that, that, that popped into my mind is if you don't do it carefully and you just go, okay, I've got my list of questions here. I'll ask this question. Isn't there a risk that the other person is going to think you're doing a technique on them? They're going to say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being operated on here. How do you make it you know, natural? How do you avoid the artificiality of something like that?
2: Great question, Paul. You avoid the artificiality by genuinely being curious and not asking a list of questions. You use the technique as the way you show up in the world. So what's really interesting is Katie and I will use this technique with each other. And although she knows, and I know I'm using the technique, Katie will say at the end of the conversation, that felt so good. (laughs) Because what I am doing is no technique. I'm talking to her brain in a way that it says, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for allowing me to have enough space to explore an idea. So... There's a huge responsibility we have whenever we're with another person, um, especially in the season you're talking about, about the presence of our energy behind the question. In fact, perhaps the most powerful question we can ask isn't anything with language. It's just with silence and present energy. I'm preparing a talk right now that is very specifically around The most powerful question you can ask is silence. I can't tell you how much people tell me when I pause and that awkward pause goes on and on. I'm cool with it. But they'll fill that space and then they'll say, nobody's ever asked me that question. And I didn't ask a question. (laughs) I was just with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: One of the things that we've really learned working with clients over the years is that um, asking great questions rarely happens when I'm staring deeply into your eyes in this penetrating way. Great questions happen when there's space, when we're on a walk, when we're side by side, when we're driving in a car. I mean, to the listeners on this, think about some of the best conversations you've had with people in your life is when you're driving and you're not staring at each other. Why? Because you feel safer. You feel psychologically safer. You're not being like having to give a performative answer. So one of the things we really talk about in the book is the fact that we've got to debunk some of these old myths that we were taught that how we communicate, you know, the best way to communicate is to give space, make it safe, be with someone and see what evolves.
1: Yeah. I, one other thing that, that I'm not sure if you covered it, um, forgive me if I missed it, but um, also it isn't about uh, asking the great question, is it? I mean, it's not about, you know, the the, the, the the home run question. Wow, got it in one. Sometimes, I mean, so I find this in life and in interviewing, um, maybe the first question you ask doesn't give you the answer you want because for whatever reason. Um, and maybe you have to dig around. Sometimes you have, might have to ask the same question in effect five or six times in different ways and, and just keep digging. But I always think if you do that, that's a good sign because it means you know what you're after. You're not just trying to, as you say, be you know practice fake curiosity or or, uh, or, or just trying to be too perfect. So sometimes it does, it does take a, a, you know, you just have to chip away, don't you, rather than just fell the tree with one blow.
2: We do indeed, and um, Katie and I are so willing to, we we, we encourage our, our clients, we encourage our clients to be patient, not to be in a rush, not to put any of that push energy on the conversation, because the person we're with, they may know the answer, but may not know that they know. So as you said, Paul, we may help to help them dig around for it. It's in there. We just have to help them dig around for it.
1: Okay, so um, we, we've, we've had a listening part of the conversation, if you like, because I think you do split them into two, don't you? There's this first phase where you're very much actively listening. Let's move on to the second bit where, you, okay, you're now, you're now better informed as to how you might better interact with this person. How do you use that information? What do you do next then to, to take the whole relationship further? Because that's what you're doing, isn't it? You, you're actually building a relationship.
0: So we show up clean and curious. We listen, we ask, tell me about, we have a one-way conversation, not a two-way conversation. When they are done speaking and you've asked the bonus question, which is, and what else? All the good stuff comes out at the last question. I'll say that. You spend eight seconds in silence with them. That's how we convey empathy. And empathy doesn't have to be just about like people who are sincere and talking about feelings or emotions. Um, empathy can also be related to, yeah, you have a tough nut to crack in what you're trying to do in your business, you know? So eight seconds of silence because we, our tendency is to really mess up empathy. We over-explain. We do me too stories. So eight seconds of silence. Thank you for sharing. Now we come to the power of the invitation. You are offering psychological safety and power and agency to the other person when you ask, how may I show up for you? I believe that I see a few options forward. May I share them with you? Are you open to getting some feedback from me about what I think could be a difference maker? It's okay if not. Um, And another way to ask the invitation is... We've struggled to connect and communicate, and I would like that to change. Would it be okay if we set up ways in which we could communicate better? So always the power of the invitation to be let in. We call that wayfinding. This is the moment when you can offer advice, share stories, come up with solutions together, Um. And give honest feedback. Or if somebody has trashed your values, done digs at pokes with you in the one-way conversation, this is your moment to say, I really hear what you're saying and I thank you for sharing that with, with me. I don't see it that way. May I share how I see it and what's not landing right for me? I'd love to have this conversation with you. Again, another way to be invited in, to then speak your truth, and they're going to probably listen more than if you had just had a typical two-way conversation that always breaks down and goes sideways.
1: Yeah. Maybe also this is a time to mention something that that, that you're very keen on, and that is um, you're not saying that all the things you advocate are always gonna work, are you? You have this thing where you talk about gaps, but then you talk about where the gap is so huge that you call it a... Canyon. Yeah. Tell me about canyons.
2: They're real. (laughs) I'd like to say that what we teach can heal every gap. But some gaps have become canyons where people are thrashing your values, offering you no, no dignity. You're in harm physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, whatever it is. And we call it flat out a canyon. And then in those situations, we implore you to get the best support you can and protect yourself the best you can.
1: Hmm. Okay. So we've, we've had our one-way, one-way conversations and we're now starting to offer um, um, suggestions and, and, and so forth. I mean, where do we go f- from there? We, hopefully by then you're getting... Maybe the, as the thing sort of self-started and it's starting to flow and, and uh, you, you know it doesn't need to be as managed because it's, it's, it's starting to work well, is, is that what we're hoping to get to by this stage?
2: Well, yes. What happens after you've often offered a one-way conversation to another person is immediately the connection deepens. They feel so much safer to be in a conversation with you often what happens is they realize they've taken up a lot of time of your time listening to having you listen to them, that they often get a little bit more curious about you. And so we invite people to continue to have these types of conversations, but to continue to have these conversations using the tools and the techniques and always have a one-way conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's not a conversation that Katie and I have four years later that doesn't use this methodology and approach. It's woven now into the DNA of how we show up. And so our invitation through this book is to really offer people not, not just a paradigm shift, but a skill shift about how they can go and have conversations that feel challenging and build a little bit more collaboration Weave a little bit more connection in the tapestry of the relationship, a little more connective tissue each time. So it's an evolution. it's 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 a process. Somebody said something to me the other day, and it really hurt my heart because it was somebody close enough, close close to me in the family, and they said, "Well, let's just let the relationship develop organically." And I said, okay, and I watched what happened over the last year. And over the last year, I estimated we'd really only had 11 minutes of genuine, meaningful conversation in the last year. The rest of it was around scheduling or noise or or something. And what Katie and I really know is that organic relationships aren't as powerful as intentional ones. So we're offering tools to build relationships at a more connective tissue level, especially if there's gaps between you, so that we can genuinely understand the differences that surround us and at least travel to each other's perspectives to gain more shared understanding.
1: Mm. It's it's easier to... To to live that life, isn't it? The person you were talking to has talked about let's let's let this evolve organically. I mean what I hear I heard there from when you, you went and went on to describe it is let's not let not actually dig away, let's not find out what's what what's under the surface. Another one of my my interviewees from, from a while back talks about what lies beneath. He's very much a Jungian and his coaching strategy is very much about that finding out what lies beneath. Um and it's it's, it, it's it's an easy life not to do that because you say we all live in our own heads. And it's a bit scary to, uh, A, try and get in someone else's head, if you like, and B, let someone else into your head. I mean, you know, one word we haven't used, but uh, gets used a lot is vulnerability and being vulnerable and seeing someone be comfortable with being vulnerable with you can be very valuable, but it's also scary. Paul, this is so
2: important. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, Dr. Brené Brown talks a lot about this um, concept as well. And she says, and I believe not everybody deserves my vulnerability. I the the same conversation I was just referring to. Somebody said, well, you just need to be more vulnerable. And I said, the safety is not there. There's only judgment. And I am not going to choose to bring the authentic vulnerability in the judgment, in the safety of psychological safety, I'll bring it all day long. But I know we're all about the same, we're, we're, we're all about creating the same connective tissue in that place. So I'm really glad you brought that up because vulnerability thrives in psychologically safe places. It can be weaponized in judgment places.
1: Yep. All right. Two words I want to get onto. You've 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 talked about them a lot, but as you start to emphasise them more as you get towards towards the end of the book, you talk a lot about trust and respect and achieving that. Just talk us through why that's so important, what you mean about that, and what people should be looking for.
0: We say that trust and respect is like an egg in a nest. You are in a relationship with someone. You're two birds tending to an egg. It can crack really easily and go sideways fast. So. We wanted to give a really practical tool about how to accelerate trust and respect and keep tending to the egg in the nest of your relationship. It begins by two different energies and about the presence that is emoted from those two energies. And it's based off of Dr. Amy Cuddy's book, Presence. She's a Harvard professor alongside Amy Edmondson and basically says that we make snap judgments about people in faster than a blink of an eye when we're with them. And often we're scanning for how competent someone is or how sincere someone is. If you really want to accelerate trust and respect, travel to their side of what you infer. You're making judgments already. Let's make a judgment that will help you. (laughs) Infer, are they a competency-driven person? Do they care about science, facts, numbers, data? Or are they a sincerity-driven person and they want to know who you are, what you stand for, and what you did over your weekend. All of us have the ability to be competent and sincere. It's just how we step forward and then our other leg follows up. I'm a sincerity-driven person. Jennifer is a competency-driven person. If I really want to connect with Jennifer, I will show up in her paradigm and energy, and it does a lot to tend to trust and respect in our relationship and vice versa Jennifer knows that for me, she can ask me about my weekend and about my kids and compliment me on my jewelry. (laughs) It goes a long way with me to know that she cares.
1: Okay. Uh, Have we covered the cycle really there as it's show up clean and curious, curious conversations, building the relationship uh, and and getting to the point where you really do start to to build trust and respect, and then you you know, you know nurture that. And it's not a one-way journey. It's, it's iterative, of course. You've got to keep doing it.
0: So as you begin to practice the curious conversations method and wayfinding with someone, you're going to need language. And so we have a chapter in there about um, language that you can use for when you're under pressure and in certain situations with certain people. And these sentence starters, we have found, have been one of the most powerful things that readers have connected with and to be able to go and practice them in a mirror in a locked bathroom to get your tone right and to find which ones authentically work for you and then to practice them like a muscle. And that will carry you a long ways forward if you really understand how to show up clean and curious. And some people just need language to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I connect with that a lot. I mean, I, um, as an interviewer, one of the things I do with some interviews is I will write questions down. You know, I, I don't just of rely on knowing what I know or generally what I want to find. I actually write the question down so that I say it in the right, I get off on the right foot. I, I start off in the right direction. Amy Edmondson does it as well in the, um, the fearless organization. You, you give scenarios at the end, say if you find yourself in this scenario, here are some, some starter uh, phrases. And uh, I, I say that's one of the things that prompted me to say, I think it was useful to get you get you to come on, and talk about it, because it's, it's there. So anyone's listening, if you want to know how to do this, it's there. It actually tells you how to start. All right, we really have run out of time, and I keep saying this. So I'm gonna ask you to um, just leave us with some key thoughts. You do have a chapter at the end, chapter 13, which is just one page, which is a lot of advice, but it's a bit too long for now. So. Super compress that and give us the the final thoughts you'd like to leave people with.
0: Bring care. Be curious. Be curious about your reactions. Be curious about the other person's reactions. Sit with it and decide to show up differently.
1: So if people want to know more, where can they find you? Where can they find the book?
0: You can find our book anywhere where you buy books. I would love it if you did it from an independent bookstore. And you can learn more about us at www.howtobridgethegap.com. Or you can Google our names.
1: Super. Well, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Katie McCleary, Jennifer Edwards, thank you very much for coming on to Talking Leaders and talking with me about your book, Bridge the Gap.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: After my conversation with Jennifer and Katie, it occurred to me that while what Bridge the Gap teaches may always have been relevant, maybe its value has been heightened in recent years. I mean, These days, there is a strong emphasis, for good reason, on diversity and the benefits that it can bring to organisations and teams. But, by definition, working with a diverse group is going to bring you into contact with people who see the world differently to you who hold different views, maybe have different values. They may well have quite different ideas about how to go about the work you're doing. And so, gaps will appear. Gaps that need to be bridged if you're going to realize the benefit of diversity. Just a thought. I'm Paul Gisby of Talking Leaders. We help leaders who want to get heard, be understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.